I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Pick and choose your own best-of-breed insurtech and data providers with Advantage Go's ecosystem. Today's guest has had one of the broadest and most diverse careers of anyone I've interviewed. Today, Kira McDonald is the Chief Underwriting Officer of Swiss Re Corporate Solutions, but over more than 25 years, she has been an actuary and a pensions consultant, a risk manager, an aviation underwriter, and a senior executive in an internal audit team. I'd say that unique blend of experience is an excellent preparation for her current role, particularly as Swiss Re Corporate Solutions moves out of its remediation phase into a period of sustainable growth. Kira is direct and easy to talk to, and in this podcast, we discuss the state of the global insurance market and corporate solutions strategy within it, as well as this unique business's position within its wider group and the applications of technology and artificial intelligence as the market digitizes. She doesn't duck any difficult questions and is excellent and incredibly well-informed company. I really benefited from my time with Kira, and I think you will too. Enjoy the podcast. Kira, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. It's really great to be here. For anybody who doesn't know you, why don't you just do a brief introduction to the listeners. Tell us a bit about your insurance career path to date. Sure. My career actually didn't start in insurance at all. I was an actuary, but for a consulting firm at the beginning, I did pension consulting for quite a few years before joining insurance. I was part of the GE acquisition that came into Swiss Re in 2005. I did some product management, uh, we would call it today. Back then, I was an aviation underwriter for quite a few years before I really wanted to move out of that niche. I mean, aviation is a fantastic line of business to learn how insurance really works. But then I wanted to move to something that was broader than that kind of deep niche uh, that I had been in. I moved to internal audit for a couple of years. I was the audit director for both our insurance and reinsurance business units for a couple of years before moving to risk management. I was the chief risk officer for corporate solutions for a couple of years, about three and a half, before when Andreas Berger, our current CEO, joined us, I came back to underwriting, which is really my home as far as a career goes, and joined him as the CEO for Corso in 2019. That's amazing. I mean, that's one of the most eclectic careers I think I've ever heard. And it's wonderful to have actuaries who are able then to be on a podcast and, and be on the show. And obviously, all our terrible prejudices about actuaries. Every time I meet an actuary, it's completely unconfirmed and always the most enlightened people in our business. But also to have gone into aviation is fascinating. Of course, you learned all about supply and demand there because it was one of those illiquid corners of the, of the insurance market as well. So you must have learned a huge amount there. Aviation seems like the least actuarial part of the market. Well, actually, I think for me, the real interesting part of all of those different changes was that I got to learn something new. That is the part that has driven me all the way through. And being in the aviation market as a, at that point, former actuary, although I'm never really sure you outgrow being an actuary, it's a state of mind in a lot of ways. It meant that I was different and I had something different to offer, which then really I thought it made the interactions with all of the colleagues and the customers very interesting for me because of the fact that I had something different to offer the conversation, which was a lot of fun. So much of our industry and in insurance comes down to math at the end of the mm -hmm. day, right? There are very, very important other aspects, but you know there is math behind a lot of the actions that we see 
And the insight into that as an actuary is just, it helps people so much, really understanding the drivers instead of just the symptoms of what we do. Well, of course, I mean, if you have the price wrong for long enough, you will eventually find out about it when you, you can't be lucky forever. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> you mentioned Andreas, and I had him on the show a couple of years ago, and he was really executing on the remediation plan for corporate solutions. We're always talking about different phases. And obviously, it's my job as a journalist to help navigate what we're doing and help it make it easy for people outside to understand what's happening in the industry. So we often say we're in different modes of operation. Two or three years ago, corporate solutions would have said it was probably in a remediatory kind of phase. What sort of phase are you in now? Growth? How would you describe it? I'll leave it to you to describe. You're exactly right. About four or five years ago now, time flies. We really had to write the book. We had to re-underwrite a significant portion of what we had done. And this is when a lot of things that we had all done with good intentions came back in ways that were unexpected. Well, it was the whole market. There's no isolated case. You're right. It was the whole market. But I think we felt the pain a little bit earlier than several of our competitors. And so what we did was line of business by line of business went through and started looking at what it is we needed to do in order to get ourselves into a stable position where we could be a dependable partner for our customers. So what we did back then was we put in what we call the smart circle. That is, it's about putting the right people at the table in order to have a multi-dimensional look at the profitability of each of our portfolios. So this would be the costing actuaries, the reserving actuaries, underwriting and claims all get together and really come to either agreement or disagreement. As long as you understand each other's points of view, there's a large value in that to understand where we are in each portfolio. And what that means for us now to answer your question is that we are at a place where several of the portfolios are in a sustainable position. And over the last years of steady profitability, we have earned the right to consciously think about growth. And we're really looking to balance our portfolio to make sure that we remain steady out into the future. When you're gathering around those round tables with all the different skill sets and all the different parts of the business represented, presumably now there's much more of a consensus. There's far fewer of them are saying, well, hang on a minute, let's keep the brakes on. Sounds like there's more of a consensus that you can grow. There is a consensus in many of the lines of business that we are at a sustainable place in the market and in our portfolio. But I wouldn't go as far as to saying that they have all come to the same opinion. I think we have really tried to make sure that there is an independence of the opinions there and they report out through different parts of our organization to maintain that independence. And so there's still significant places where we have a difference of opinion. It's just that both of those opinions may land on the green side of the line at this moment, put it that way. Obviously, yes, it was the insurance sector that reset itself or began its own remediation work much earlier than the reinsurance segment this time, which is quite rare. We used to always talk about the reinsurance tail wagging the insurance dog, but this time it took the reinsurance tail quite a long time to wag, although it wagged pretty hard when it did just over a year ago, particularly 1123 renewals. How has that changed the market? Has it given you even perhaps more impetus, more opportunities? Because certainly more reinsurance reliant insurers are perhaps have been more constrained or found things harder. Has it opened up more opportunities for a business like yours? I think it maintained a dynamic that was there is kind of my, my feeling that we developed throughout the last year. And we continue to feel through the, the early renewals in 24. 
there were several years of catch-up that caused that big bang, if you want to call it that, you know, at the beginning of last year for the reinsurers. That means that for us as an insurer and for all of my competitors, we now retain a larger part of those frequency losses. We need yeah. to have a much more focused approach to the modeling of the secondary perils that I think it took the industry a while to catch up on the wildfires and the floods and the hails and things like that. And so I do believe that it made people really think twice about the profitability, especially obviously on the cat side, of what they have and the volatility that they need to cover themselves that maintained a dynamic that was there. So it keeps the pressure on. Sometimes we think with, if you're Swiss Re, we think you might be immune from some of these things that are affecting your competitors. Obviously, that pressure to retain more but that's not the case. It sounds like you know, you're under the same pressure as everybody else in the market. We very much are under the same pressure as everybody else. Actually, the vast majority of my reinsurance as corporate solutions comes from external reinsurance providers. Right. Okay. Because obviously we assume maybe you know, you'll shake hands with colleagues in Zurich and obviously it's wrong for us to assume that because it's difficult to see that from the outside. Yeah. I think there was a point in time, call it 15 years ago, where that idea was there. But it has not been that way for a very long time. We do benchmarking just like everybody else to understand the program of reinsurance that our competitors have. And I would say we are comparable. That's a very good discipline anyway, isn't it? And also, it's a great discipline to say that this business stands alone and it continues to exist because it makes sense to exist and it should exist because it's a good business rather than saying it's a segment of something else. A big part of this year's renewals on the reinsurance side, but also on the insurance side, has been more of a debate about casualty, whereas, let's say, from the reinsurance side at 1123, it was all about cat risk, property side of things, really resetting that. This time, certainly going into that renewal at Monte Carlo and those sort of places where we were talking about the renewals, reinsurers wanted to talk more about casualty, that they were more worried. When it came to 1-1, deals were done, but there was an interesting difference of opinion. There is a difference of opinion between insurers and reinsurers and reinsurers and reinsurers. So where are you standing on that debate? Obviously, and particularly when you've got quite an open culture of debate within your own organization, where did you land in the end? Because obviously, as an actuary yourself, there's so much data sort of up in the air, particularly when you throw in that pause for the pandemic and then the inflation, a lot of complications there that are quite noisy, aren't they? Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision-makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. They are noisy, but I think if you take the whole thing together, I mean, it's clear that 2015 to 2020, those years are developing for the industry in a way that was not expected at the beginning and is not favorable to many of those reinsurers out there, yeah. but the insurers as well. And so really what that means is that I think people need to be quite sure of their predictions if they want to be optimistic about trends that came in through corona staying, especially in the U.S. market. Look, in our writing of the book in 2019, 
what Corporate Solutions did was we exited the large corporate GL US market. That means that I have less of that in my portfolio today than many of the competitors. Obviously, I still do international programs. We have exposure through that, but it, it is a smaller portion of my book than for many others. With that, we make sure that we try to be very, very realistic about what the trends are as far as inflation of all kinds and understand the underlying drivers. That means that I think that really people should be quite careful and distinguish because it is not one size fits all in that U.S. market or anywhere else. The dynamics are granular and you have to really understand each market that you're in. Yep. I suppose everyone's relative feelings of optimism or pessimism are bound to be shaped by their own experience preceding that. And I suppose if you came into casualty after COVID, you didn't have to write any of the 2015 to 2020 or whichever, you know, take your pick of which exactly years it is, which is 2014 to 2019 or whatever. For the not so good years, perhaps presumably you've had a lower share of those, you'd be feeling more optimistic now and saying, well, we're in a great place. Casualty is currently loss-making within corporate solutions still. Do you think that's coming to an end now? That's something that those remedial actions are going to take effect? I know obviously within casualty, things take longer. They do take longer. We've taken a lot of actions over the last couple of years to try to make sure that we have reserved enough to cover these. At this point, on a duration basis, you'll start to see some of the timing of those dwindle off. My belief is we will see less of that going forward, the PYD part of it. And really, then we start to look at the 2020 and onwards business that has been written. Starting in 2020, we would expect those to be positive contributors to the longer term Corso portfolio. And that's really an evidence of the actions that we took. And really, our task now is to make sure that we take that out into the future to remain stable and profitable. This is around continuing with those smart circle actions. It's around making sure that we have systematic trend spotting. We've really tried to make sure that we embed that into how we function and really using all of the the knowledge within our team of people, within the market, within the data that we have in order to make sure that we make the right call on that stuff going forward. I'd say FinPro is slightly different in that you also have that negative prior year development, but there's much more dynamic cycle in some of the pricing cycles that we've seen. So specifically, the public DNO market in North America has been really dynamic, as you know. I've got that on my list of questions. So as you say, we could talk about it now. It's a fascinating market. Was that an overcorrection? I mean, obviously, markets can overcorrect on both on the upside and the downside with hindsight. Or was it just certainly there's a lot of frustration on both sides of the Atlantic about market behavior there? And some people saying, well, uh, people writing to budget, not necessarily writing the risk in front of them, that kind of thing, or because there were less IPOs and all sorts of odd things. You think that as an underwriter, you think, well, if the market changes, surely you can change your budget dynamically, can't you, if, if, if there are less IPOs than you expect. But what's your view on it? Do you think it's going to stabilize now? I think it will stabilize some. Our current expectation is somewhere in the flat to minus 5% range for 2024, which is less than it has been recently, obviously. But we do, as a market, have to be realistic that a one-year trend in IPO, in number of IPOs, is not going to drive the longer-term sustainability of this product line. I think anybody who believes that that is a sustainable strategy will probably be in for a not-so-happy surprise come the near future. But in terms of overall 
adequacy, obviously, it was a very sharp correction. And obviously now it has it fall back down. But we're still, I suppose, double where we were before we had the correction. It was difficult to work it out exactly. So is it now to say this is a, a sensible place to be starting from a rating adequacy point of view? Is this not a bad place? So based on our estimates right now, I believe that it's borderline. Truly, we are right about at that place where if it continues to deteriorate, it will cross over into non-profitable territory. And that's before you take any trends for the coming year into consideration. So I think that that one is one that we are keeping our eye on very carefully. And most of the, the market is, but it takes very conscious underwriting, very conscious limit management in order to try to make sure that you stay out in front of really those dynamic areas like that, because it has to be steered through underwriting action. We can't just ride those kind of spikes. You have to do something about it. And that's part of what our smart circle is about. When you have all of the knowledge from the different functions at the table, we can have a real discussion around what is it we're going to do in order to not be passive, but really steer our destiny there. Obviously, boardrooms are exposed to new perils, aren't they, all the time? I don't know, greenwashing or all sorts of new things that didn't exist 20 years ago. Again, presumably, you've got to be able to price in for some of that uncertainty. You've got to be able to price something for some of these sort of known unknowns. Well, part of that is around this really this trend spotting, because by the time you start to see some claims on some of these, people have been talking about it for a while. And so really understanding what trends we should focus on and which ones are the noise that's always there. You can only do that through call it the group think that comes together when you have lots of voices that go into your trend spotting process. So we really spend a lot of time focusing on that. But on top of that, you're right. There will be something that is completely unknown. And that just goes to the volatility of the product line. And volatility is part of what we as insurers covering that volatility, we pay to have that covered from the reinsurers. And there's a price to volatility. There is when we buy our reinsurance and when you buy insurance. That's part of how the math works behind that one. Obviously, we had that um, reset on the property cat side of things, really changing things, really upping retentions and really squeezing pressure on insurers. And then presumably, they're putting that pressure back down onto the insureds themselves. We've had a much better renewal this year after this reset, because for reinsurers, it's become a much more attractive place to be on the property cat side. And we had some signings down and you know overplacing of some of those large placements, but the ones that are very remote. Is any of that going to transfer into stabilization of the insurance market now that you've had a stable reinsurance renewal after a very difficult one, and now it's been much more stable, much more predictable in terms of capacity and and an increased availability of capacity and ability to write new top layers, that kind of thing. Do you think that will then be able to be passed down into the exposed insurance market this year? So what we're seeing, it's matching up to expectations uh, pretty much. We're seeing... On a nominal basis, rates are up slightly. It's stabilized considerably since last year or the year before. But really, that's almost entirely wiped out by loss trend, right? inflation and loss trend. So that makes it flat on a real basis. And I think that that prolongation of the flat right, is really partially due to the discipline that was there in in the reinsurance renewals. They held on the attachment points. They had a largely flat renewal, and that will bring a flat-ish dynamic into the cat market, I think, for 24. 
Obviously, with insurance, it takes longer sometimes to pass things through. That reinsurance can be quite clean because it's a small number of contracts. And once you've renewed them all, you know, it takes 12 months to kind of make your changes. Sometimes it can take longer in insurance, or you have to do more steps. Is there still more work to be done in terms of right-sizing that and balancing your portfolio in the light of the new reinsurance structures? For us on the property side, which is really the cat market is is where a lot of this action happened over the last while. I don't think that it's a rebalancing that we're talking about. It is a sustainably priced market. So we would like more of it as many of our competitors would as well. I think it's a matter of making sure that we are very aware that we stay on top of both frequency trends and inflation trends so that we don't get behind as an industry on that. Because something that is sustainably priced now doesn't mean it stays sustainably priced if the price doesn't move with the factors behind it. So inflation is considerable still on the property side. And also the kind of the rise of the secondary perils is something that I think many of our competitors are still getting their hands around. Yeah, particularly, I suppose, after a not very severe, but very frequent loss year of 2023 that has been quite painful, of which, of course, far more of the burden of that loss has been borne by insurers rather than reinsurers. Absolutely. The reinsurers would tell you that they have gotten back to the place that it should be as far as the split between insurers and reinsurers in the proportion of the losses out there. But that means that as an insurer, you very much need to underwrite with a gross mentality uh, for the very significant portion of what you do. It has to be profitable on a gross basis as well as on a net basis because a significant portion of that risk will stay on your own book. Before we move on, you're a global business. Just give us a hint of where you're most happy in terms of what lines and geographies you are at the moment. So North America property right now, we believe is well-priced. I think that when you look into EMEA as well, Europe is attractive for core property also. Yep. Casualty remains profitable for EMEA also. APAC and LATAM, their growth areas for us across most of the lines actually is looking relatively stable, which is a good place to be. Obviously, what's happened in the last 12 months accompanying the inflation has been a return of higher interest rates and what more historically normalized interest rates. The corollary of that is, of course, obviously after those mark-to-market losses that we had in 2023, now that that's all kind of washed through, we've got investment income suddenly making a pleasant return. Obviously, I've been around long enough to remember an era of higher interest rates, of real interest rates. Back in some of those old days, you know, you, the old adage, you could write 103 and a half combined ratio. You had, if say you had three and a half ratio of reserves to surplus, and you could still make 12% ROE on that. Is there any worry in the back of your mind that insurers might rediscover this? Because it's been almost 20 years of absence for this. Rediscover the joys of writing for investment income rather than underwriting profits. In the longer term, I mean, I can't make any predictions there. In the short term, I have to say that this memory of a non-profitable market, it's too fresh uh, for most of us. So right now it's all about discipline and it's all about making sure that what has now become, at least for us in corporate solutions, ingrained in our DNA, that as an underwriter, you have to produce profit as an underwriter, not just as a loss leader for asset income. So we're very much focused on monitoring and controlling from an underwriting perspective and making sure that, that we stay on the track that we're on. I can't speak for everybody else, but right now we're pretty focused there. I would not see that going away anytime soon. 
So you leave the investment in to look after itself and it can be the icing on the cake, but the cake's got to be a nice cake that you've already baked that's already sub 100 or, and significantly so. Absolutely. What's a company the last four or five years? Obviously, we've had big changes in the marketplace, but also big changes on the technological side of the market. And it seems that this year, certainly I'm sitting in London and a lot of, I wouldn't call them big bangs. I think a lot of people would really dislike me saying that. A lot of big changes coming through the realization from very long projects in our global corporate specialty wholesale insurance market. What's your strategy around this in terms of now that we're finally getting to a stage where the market is digitizing much more. There is more data available to us to ingest either from our clients and from third-party sources that we can augment. What's your strategy around that? And so your own reinsurers will probably have slightly higher levels of expectation as well in terms of the data that they would expect you to pass to them. How do you play in that space and how do you make yourself able to make the most of all those opportunities that it's throwing up? So right now, I think it's fair to say that corporate solutions, like many other players, is really working to understand the opportunities that are there, that are new and dynamic. So we're really working around right now reducing manual work, reducing the cost that goes along with that, and enabling our people to focus on the value add parts as opposed to their repetition parts. So things like ingestion of data, I mean, that one's a relatively easy one to spot as far as a place that could add value. We're working on that. We have several use cases that are going with the data group from the Swiss Re Institute as well. It's really around augmentation of our underwriting process and decision rather than any kind of substitution at this point. So that's really where we're heading with it, at least for now. So like having a really smart underwriting assistant, obviously, who works 24 hours a day and goes through some of that data and then presents it to the underwriter. Presents data that has been ingested. There is a first attempt at kind of placing it into some of the formats in our systems that the underwriters then use, rather than having to do that ingestion or triage helping the underwriters understand if you're going to need to prioritize your time, should you look at this one first or this other one first? Those kind of things can add value. They're relatively low-hanging fruit in the scale of what AI can do. So this is AI, but not a huge amount of I. I mean, it's not taking incredibly executive decisions. It's presenting things. Is it things like, yes, this triaging you're talking about saying, oh, well, this is like a sort of 83 out of 100 risk. So I think you should look at this one first on this methodology I'm using. And this one's a 57, so leave that one to the end of the day. You know, I think my time in risk management and in audit affected me a little bit in that I worry about the operational risk that's involved in this transition time, if you want to call it that. It really is very intelligent. And computers can do many of the things that we do, sometime way out there in the future. But in the middle, there is a chance of either people depend on this intelligent part of it too much and therefore things get overlooked or yeah. else the computer makes the wrong decision. And you have this phase of heightened operational risk that is there, right? And if unless we're very careful in addressing that, we open up ourselves to, I think, different risks than we've ever faced in the past. Yes, yeah, certainly. It always seems to be at the point of transition where you jump from one ship to the next that, of course, you've got the risk of falling into the sea, that there are cracks, potentially, there are perils. Absolutely. So I would rather you start us on the places where there is a help for the underwriter. It's very clear that the underwriter is still making the decision before we get comfortable enough to then take the next step from there. Okay. And how far away do you think that might be at some point when we could get comfortable? Or do you think we'll 
ever get comfortable with it fully. And obviously, underwriting very, very high volume, very low value motor portfolios, it's effectively AI driven anyway. Today, for example, do you think how far into our much higher value, much lower volume business do you think some of this could go? Say, give it 10, 15 years. I think it depends, as you said, completely on what type of business it is. The smaller flow business, I think, will move faster. I hadn't really considered how long. We always say five years, and then somehow it's, it remains five years out. <laughs> but I, I do think that it will take you know, at least five years, even for that more simple stuff. For the truly bespoke, high-end, complex deals, that's going to take a lot longer. If you take a large international program, it may get some help from AI, but it will not be driven by AI in the near future. So if you're talking about a global multinationals property program, they're still really complicated. Yes. We've already touched on this, but I've never really discussed this with everyone from Corporate Solutions. You're part of the Swiss Re, which is, you know, a global institution in insurance and reinsurance. So does it affect the way you go about things? I mean, presumably it's a good way of opening doors because you present your business card to someone, someone say, oh, who's that? Is it a way of differentiating yourself among your peers or does it affect the way that you go about your day-to-day -day business knowing that you're part of Swiss Re? It's a really good question. So as a part of Swiss Re, what we do is we work on the understanding of the perils out there with many of our colleagues from group. So if I think about our natural catastrophe modeling, the trends that we see on tropical storms and things like that, we discuss those with the group colleagues. And that is a big benefit in making sure that we are very knowledgeable in how we underwrite our business. Other than that, we do not get information sent to us that is, call it, on the other side of the compliance wall. So that is completely separate. We are a separate part of the group. But we do, I think, adopt a mentality that is more of a gross underwriting mentality. Because as a reinsurer, what you do is you absorb that gross risk. So for us internally here at Swiss Re to go around saying that, hey, we got this great way of sending all the risk to the reinsurers, that would not play well, right? Mm -hmm. And so we really underwrite to make a gross profit. We pass off some for volatility and, and on a comparable basis, but this idea of really viewing the risk on a gross basis almost everywhere, I think is something we inherited from our Swiss re roots, if you want to call it that. Yes. If a reinsurer creates an insurer, then I suppose it wants to make it the ideal seedant. <laughs> exactly. Right. So we have been very successful in providing profits over the years to our reinsurers, also the ones that are internal in Swiss Re. But this idea of really understanding the sum of the parts, right, the retained and the passed off to the reinsurance part, both need to be sustainable is something that is just part of who we are, I think. Yeah. And I suppose it you have the luxury of a longer term view. You're not like a startup that is looking for a five or six year window with investors who want to cash out at some point in the future. You know, you're part of a business that's been around since the late 19th century. So presumably you, you can have a much longer term view on things. You know, you're going to be here. Yes. So Swiss Re will be here. And also the point of corporate solutions is to be a partner with our clients. It's very specifically stated in our purpose. And for us to be steady and be there for the future when we pay out the claims, which is our part of the equation, that part of it has to be steady and it has to be sustainable for all the people involved. One last question. It's more of a kind of philosophical one. 
I always think of it as a cyclical one. Um, so you'll correct me if you don't think that. Often at the end of a softer market, I, you know, I go to lots of conferences and at those conferences at the end of softer markets, the industry sort of collectively worries about how relevant it is, how relevant it is to society at large and to clients specifically. Now, we've obviously, we've been putting our houses in order collectively over the last five years, and that's involved prolonged hardening. And one could argue that that is also making us slightly less relevant because we are demanding that clients have much higher deductibles on original policies, that kind of thing. Do you think it's something we need to worry about at all? Will it be time for us to start worrying about how relevant we are again? I mean, it's interesting because when that question comes up, there is a belief that the clients buy insurance only based on price, that there's no value in what they get, which I, I actually believe is wrong. There is a value in really the services that go along with what we do. Everything from banning the complex international program world out there to the risk engineering that is provided to the clients and the insights from that. I mean, all the way through to the insights into longer natural catastrophe trends that we can help them with when it comes to deciding, say, for instance, where to build their next factory, those kind of things. So this idea that there's nothing else than merely a transaction, it almost doesn't give us credit, I think, as an industry for some other real supporting things that we do for our clients. And I also believe that one of the things that really is the core reason for insurance is to take the volatility for investors out. And that, in order for us to be here, we have to reflect the reality out there, including the loss trends and the inflation, in order to be the sustainable partner. And so we have had this hardening. We have had the correction. We've gotten it to a sustainable place. I don't think that makes us less relevant. I think it makes us more realistic. If you want to be a good partner to someone, you've got to sometimes tell them things they don't necessarily want to hear. And we already know we're telling you all this stuff and you probably know it anyway. But thank you so much, Kira. I've really enjoyed talking to you. Obviously, it's a fascinating business like yours. So we'll have to book in time at some point in the future to check in again and see where we are in, in, in a couple of years time. So I wish you all the best between now and then. Thanks very much to you too. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance podcast is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling enterprise-scale underwriting through a single pane of glass. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.